Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. A terrorist attack in Jerusalem this morning leaves three people dead. As a temporary truce between Israel and Hamas is extended another day just minutes before expiring. The U.S. urges Israel to narrow its zone of combat once operations resume in Gaza. That and other ideas administration officials are floating to minimize civilian casualties. Hamas terrorists released 16 more civilian hostages, including one U.S. citizen, as families of Americans still held captive meet in Washington to push for their release. Tis the season for pro-Palestinian demonstrations. The Rockefeller Christmas tree lighting ceremony gets interrupted by hundreds of protesters. A bank investigator sounded the alarm on Hunter Biden transactions with the Chinese regime back in 2018. We have the latest on an email released by the House Oversight Committee. A top campaign aide for GOP hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy jumps ship and joins former President Trump what this might mean for Ramaswamy's campaign. The United Auto Workers Union is looking to launch a new initiative to organize the entire non-union sector of the automotive industry. Entity's Don Ma breaks it down. This is NTD Good Morning, live from our global headquarters. Here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Thursday, November 30th. And of course, we start off by um, saying that our, we have um, our deepest sympathies to those victims and the families of those victims in the terrorist attack in Jerusalem. Yes, and hopefully the claim by Hamas that the 10-month-old hostage and his family in captivity have been killed is false. Mm, that's right. And um, so as you can hear, we are starting our top news today again with the Israel-Hamas war and in the terrorist attack in Jerusalem this morning that left three civilians dead and six wounded. Video of the attacks shows two terrorists shooting into a crowded bus stop after getting out of their car. They are then killed by an IDF soldier who was returning to his unit with the help of an armed civilian. This happened after the truce between Israel and Hamas was extended and just minutes before it was set to expire. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel on his fourth visit since October 7th. He met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog today to discuss the way forward and to make sure an attack like October 7th never happens again. The top U.S. diplomat says the temporary ceasefire is producing results. Here's Lincoln earlier today. We're reminded yet again by the events in Jerusalem today of the threat from terrorism that uh, Israel and Israelis face every single day. And we have seen uh, over the last week the very positive development of hostages coming home, being reunited with their families, and that should continue today. Uh, it's also enabled uh, an increase in humanitarian assistance to go to innocent civilians in Gaza who need it uh, desperately. 
temporary pause was extended to a seventh day, just six minutes before the deadline. That was at 12 a.m. Eastern time. It's the second extension of the initial four-day truce that began last week on Friday. Israel's military says the pause under the current framework will go on as long as the process to free hostages continues. Both sides say they are ready to resume fighting as soon as the truce ends. So far, the pause has resulted in the release of 70 Israelis. And the IDF says it's assessing a claim about the death of 10-month-old Kafir Bibas. Hamas says an Israeli strike killed the youngest Israeli hostage along with his brother and mother. Hamas provided no evidence to support the claim. The Bibas family released a statement saying they're waiting for information to be confirmed and hopefully refuted by military officials. The U.S. is urging Israel to narrow its zone of combat in its offensive after pause negotiations end. And to clarify which locations in Gaza are safe for civilians to shelter. One U.S. official says intelligence suggests Hamas leadership fled to southern Gaza, but did not say if it was U.S. or Israeli intelligence. The IDF says many Hamas terrorists fled to the south due to Israel announcing strikes beforehand and that it's something that needs to be addressed in the future campaign. Administration officials are reportedly asking for more targeted precision strikes. They're floating the idea of moving civilians back north once operations in the south begin. And we're joined live by Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, who is an IDF spokesman. We're going to discuss the claim by Hamas that an Israeli strike killed hostages and the campaign in southern Gaza and hostage negotiations. Lieutenant Colonel Lerner, thank you so much for your time today. Is there any update on whether or not this claim is verified? I think I'm, I'm very finding it very hard to hear you. I think if you're asking me about the clarification of about the claims that Hamas have made about the Bibas uh, babies, um, unfortunately, I can't confirm this at this time. Of course, we are looking into the uh, uh, claim. We have uh, engaged with the family. We are embracing the family. This family of these beautiful ginger babies, they had absolutely nothing. There was no reason for them to be in Gaza. And Hamas, they took them into Gaza. They are responsible for their well-being. They have to bring them home. Yes, and we've seen all the balloons released in Tel Aviv in order to secure his release as well. So do you think that this is a form of psychological warfare that Hamas is using with this claim? Well, obviously, throughout the last uh, seven weeks, we've seen Hamas extensively utilizing psych psychological terrorism in order to cause more harm, more pain to Israelis. Um, of the last uh, six days, and now we're in day seven of the hostage uh, release, hostage transfer, we have, and Israeli society, have been glued to their televisions uh, in anticipation to see who is being released, in anticipation to see what is their condition. And indeed, every word that comes out of Hamas is part of their psychological terrorism against, um, against Israel. Colonel Lerner, what do you make of the timing of this claim by Hamas, given that there haven't been any significant strikes by the IDF recently due to the ceasefire? I don't want to address what Hamas is doing. I can say what we are doing. We are currently in the, in the process of preparing for today for an additional hostage handover to Israel. We will... Uh, of course, receive them at the border and accompany them to the initial medical assistance that they need to receive. 
psychological um, evaluation and then hand them over to the Israeli health authorities um, on one hand. And on the other hand, we are preparing for our operational side of the, of the mission of regain, resuming our efforts against Hamas in order to dismantle and destroy them and make sure that they don't have the power of government uh, in order to conduct such brutal, merciless acts of terrorism against us ever again. Yes, and let's turn now to the ground campaign in southern Gaza. Does the IDF have a plan to use greater precision in its strikes there? We are conducting, uh, um, obviously, after-action reviews from the uh, our operations in the north, and we are, I'd say, designing uh, operational plans for uh, to reach our goals of destroying and dismantling Hamas. Uh, obviously, I won't go into specifics, but of course, we are taking into consideration the need and necessity to be to operate within the civilian arena. This is where Hamas chooses the battleground. They have instilled all of their operational capabilities in schools, in mosques, in hospitals, in UN facilities. This is the challenge that we face. Of course, we are uh, in a war against Hamas, not against the people of Gaza. And the United States is, of course, putting pressure on Israel to minimize civilian casualties, given that there are now hundreds of thousands of new arrivals in southern Gaza, people that have fled. So what precautions does the IDF take in order to carry out its operations with that in mind? We're very attentive uh, to the uh, U.S. administration. Of course, we are, uh, and with our other allies as well, we are taking into consideration in our operational planning, but nevertheless, we are determined to dismantle and destroy Hamas. I think every decent human being sees the images of the Bibas babies, these beautiful ginger babies being snatched into Gaza together with their mother. Um, This is what we are up against, a ruthless enemy that has no regard for human life, Israeli or Palestinian. Uh, Our role is to make sure that this, this never happens again. And the U.S. is urging Israel to narrow its zone of combat in southern Gaza. How will Israeli forces ensure that there are enough refugee areas for civilians? So again, I'm not speaking specifically about our operations and our operational activities. The the reality is one we we realize and acknowledge the the challenges of the battleground, which the challenges of where Hamas is positioning itself, the challenges of precisely them embedding themselves within the civilian arena. And of course, we are operating accordingly, within, in accordance to the laws of armed conflict and international humanitarian law. In order to facilitate that, we have, over the last seven days, increased the amount of humanitarian aid gone into Gaza, hundreds of trucks, truckloads of food supplies, of medical supplies, of shelter, of fuel, um, all in order to facilitate and alleviate some of the conditions of war. It is a war after all, and, and this is the reality Uh, I would say a war that Israel did not want, a war that we weren't even preparing for, uh, but a war nevertheless that we have no choice but to defeat Hamas. And let's talk about the hostage negotiations. They're starting to turn now to freeing military members within the Israeli forces, and those deals may be tougher to secure. So how is Israel planning to bring them back home? So the hostage uh, negotiations does not fall under the responsibility of the IDF. Of course, we're involved, but I can't really debate and talk beyond that. The hostage situation is a very, very sensitive, delicate issue. From our perspective, the hostages and Hamas is responsible for the well-being of all the hostages. They all need to come home. We've demanded that the International Committee of the Red Cross have access to assess their well-being. 
uh, but they all need to come home and we are uh, very determined to bring them all home, every last one of them. Yes, and Israel certainly is very determined given that back in 2011, there was an exchange for a single Israeli soldier for 1,027 Palestinian prisoners. So that's very evident there. Is there any update on the apparent breach of the ceasefire that occurred in which explosives were blown off in several areas in northern Gaza? I'm not aware of this today. Uh, we have had over the last couple of days a few incidents, very localized. Uh, we are uh, operating under two core uh, ideas, the first being uh, maintaining our defensive logistical positions in northern Gaza Strip while defending ourselves. And on the other hand, ensuring that the hostages are released and brought, and brought home. Uh, we understand that these work hand in hand with one, other, one another. And indeed, in, in, in various different exchanges, when Hamas have attacked us with explosive devices, we have fired back. And, and I'm aware of three Palestinians that were killed in exchanges with our forces. Um, this is a reality, but nevertheless, we are very, very much focused on bringing home the hostages. Colonel Lerner, can you tell us anything about the resources that the Israeli military has as it proceeds to uh, eradicate Hamas and its goals there in terms of ammunition, supplies and things like that? So, uh, you know, this is those obviously the sensitivities of the issues of our weapons uh, and capabilities. I would say we have techniques and technology. We have, I would say, the spirit and resolve. Uh, when you combine all of those together, we are certain in our just war against Hamas, but also in its outcome, an outcome which all of the people of the region will benefit from. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, IDF spokesman, thank you so much for your update on this. Thank you. The Hamas terrorist organization released 16 civilian hostages yesterday, including one American. Officials say 10 Israelis and four Thai citizens were set free in the deal. Two Russian-Israeli women were released separately. That was in a three-to-one prisoner exchange as part of the ongoing pause. Meanwhile, in Washington, American families still waiting for news of their loved ones held captive gathered for meetings with U.S. officials. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the latest hostage release and the plight of those not on the list. President Biden on Wednesday said Israeli-American hostage Liat Benin was released in the latest hostage for prisoner swap and that she made it safe to Egypt after crossing Gaza's border. Things are moving well. She'll soon be home with her three children. Liat's father says Biden called him and invited him to the White House after her release. The, the conversation that my wife and I had with the president was very, very pleasant. Uh, we first and foremost thanked him for his efforts, the efforts of his administration in securing the release of our daughter. Hostages in Wednesday's release ranged from ages of 13 to 73 years old, some reported being beaten and threatened with death. Israeli authorities say 30 Palestinian prisoners were released in the exchange. The number of prisoners was split between women and teenage males. All were arrested after the October 7th terrorist attacks except one. Ahed Tamimi was one of the prisoners released Wednesday night. The 22-year-old woman was arrested for a social media post calling for the slaughter of Israelis in the West Bank. White House officials believe seven or eight Americans are still in Hamas captivity. Family members spoke with the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee on Capitol Hill about their plight, describing it as a form of psychological warfare from Hamas, as they're left waiting for any news about their children and relatives or any sign of life. The clock continues to tick and not in our favor. Most American Israelis still being held are IDF soldiers and not part of the deal to be released first.
we believe collectively that anybody from any group should be released. There should be a mixed group from now on. Yes, we 100% agree that children, being the sensitive souls that they are, should have been released first. But from now on, there should be a consideration of men and women, old and young, soldiers and civilians. They all should come out. American families are urging the Biden administration to keep pushing for their family members' release and Red Cross access to hostages still in Gaza. Idan is an American kid. He graduated last year from uh, Tenafly High School. He loves parties. He's got tons of friends. He's a professional swimmer. He's he amazing. He doesn't belong he there. He like with us, with the family. As simple as that. Yeah. Israel says 200 humanitarian aid trucks were transferred Wednesday from Egypt's Rafah crossing to UN organizations in the Gaza Strip, along with six containers of fuel and cooking gas as part of the ongoing pause framework to get hostages out. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The UN is investigating sexual violence by the Hamas terror group in the October 7th attacks on Israel. The agency said Wednesday it will soon launch an appeal for evidence. Evidence will be given to the International Criminal Court. Israel and families of Israeli hostages have criticized the UN for keeping quiet on the matter in the past. Israeli authorities opened their own investigation after evidence of rape and other sexual crimes emerged, including victims found disrobed and mutilated. Testimony was also given by first responders at the sites of the attacks and from soldiers who tended to the bodies during the identification process. The evidence gathered could be used for war crimes prosecutions. The annual Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting ceremony in New York City was met with a huge protest. Hundreds of pro-Palestine supporters swarmed the event yesterday. They clashed with police and chanted slogans like, from the river to the sea. One protester had a sign with a swastika comparing the Israel Defense Forces to Nazis. Police arrested at least four people after two separate incidents outside of the ceremony. So far, the NYPD has prevented protesters from making it to the tree. The group has been marching through the streets of the Big Apple over the last week. Police arrested 34 people last Thursday after protests from a socialist group interrupted the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade to support Palestinians. Switching gears now, one of the most influential politicians in history died yesterday at the age of 100. Henry Kissinger was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, but a man whose legacy includes some controversy. And a bank investigator raised red flags about money from the Chinese regime going to Hunter Biden back in 2018. We have the latest from a new document released by the House Oversight Committee. Taking a stand against the Chinese Communist Party, brave Chinese citizens were honored outside the U.S. Capitol. Entity's Melina Weisskopf was there. An activist for democracy in China was assaulted during the APEC summit in San Francisco. The victim now pleading with police to investigate the incident. Get those details when we come back.
Good to have you back. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger died yesterday at the age of 100. His firm released a statement saying he died at his home in Connecticut. Kissinger served as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State under Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. He received a Nobel Peace Prize for helping arrange the end of U.S. military involvement in the Vietnam War. He was also a pivotal figure in easing tension with the Soviet Union. He also played a key role in opening relations between the U.S. and China. However, his legacy isn't without criticism. He was heavily criticized over the bombing of Cambodia during the Vietnam War, as well as supporting a coup against a democratic government in Chile. No cause of death has been released yet. And erratic payments with no services rendered. A bank investigator sounded the alarm on over a dozen large wire transfers to accounts controlled by Hunter Biden. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the 2018 email released by Representative James Comer. The bank investigator was working under the Bank Secrecy Act. That's a U.S. law that makes banks help the government identify and combat money laundering. The email shows the bank investigator flagged about $5 million in funding from a company linked to the Chinese government. Called Northern International Capital Holdings, the money was described as a business loan, but the investigator says no one submitted a loan agreement. The email says erratic payments to a Hunter Biden joint venture company with a Chinese national soon followed. That company is Hudson West. There were also payments to a company owned by Hunter Biden called Owasco PC. The bank investigator wrote that money was being paid out, but there were no investment projects. The investigator said the money primarily funded 16 wires, ranging from around $157,000 to $400,000. That added up to nearly $3 million to a redacted name and to Owasco PC, a law firm in D.C. owned by Hunter Biden. In the email, the bank manager warned about China targeting the children of politicians and purchasing political influence through, quote, sweetheart deals. The investigator specifically mentioned Hunter Biden's $1.5 billion deal with the Chinese state to establish a private equity firm in which they managed the funds over time and make huge fees. The investigator wrote that the management company's purpose is to invest in companies that benefit the Chinese government, adding that the activity on the account appears unusual with no current business purpose and may require re-evaluation of the bank's relationship with the customer. That's Hunter Biden activity linked to China, but Republicans also have concerns about the first son related to Ukraine. They said on Wednesday they want to talk to executives at Blue Star Strategies, a lobbying company connected to Hunter Biden. Representatives Jim Jordan and James Comer said they have evidence suggesting the company was involved in the arrangement between Hunter Biden and Burisma, a Ukrainian-based energy company. Burisma hired Blue Star in 2015 at the urging of Hunter Biden when President Biden was vice president. Republicans say emails show that Burisma hired Blue Star to close down any investigations into Burisma's founder and owner. But it's not just Hunter Biden who's in the crosshairs. House Republicans are considering holding a formal vote next month to authorize the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Make no mistake, financial records, emails, text messages, and witness testimony reveal that the Biden family enterprise is centered on Joe Biden's political career and connections. 
Joe Biden knew about, participated, and benefited from these schemes. The White House has insisted Biden was not involved in his son's business dealings. No president has ever been forced from the White House through impeachment. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Senate Judiciary Committee may soon vote to issue a subpoena for two major conservative players. Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin said yesterday he plans to hold votes today on subpoenas for the co-chairman of the board of the influential Federalist Society, Leonard Leo, and Republican donor Harlan Crow. The Judiciary Committee investigation revolves around reports of justices' failures to declare luxury gifts and trips on financial disclosures raising questions about transparency and ethics on the high court. Republicans say the move is politically motivated. Taking a stand against the Chinese Communist Party, not an easy feat for citizens inside China. Nevertheless, thousands have done so. And yesterday, these voices were reinforced outside the U.S. Capitol. Entities Melina Weisskopf reports from Capitol Hill. In an event right outside of the U.S. Capitol this evening, a group of Chinese dissidents and human rights activists are trying to remind the world that the Chinese Communist Party's grip on its people may not be as strong as it seems. And that's clear not only from the people who are commemorating the white paper movement today, but also with the white paper movement itself. So just to take you back to exactly how this all started, well, around this time last year, there were tens of thousands of Chinese people who took to the streets holding up pieces of blank white paper in protest of China's zero COVID policy, but not only in protest of that policy, also calling for an end to the Chinese Communist Party and the dictatorship. What that would take to risk your life in a regime like that to speak on behalf of truth and protest tyranny, I think that should give us all who are lucky enough to live in the free world some courage to do whatever we can uh, to protect the freedoms we have. Year after year, more and more Chinese people are standing up to demand their basic human rights. Year after year, the change is happening. Took it upon himself to read off a list of names of people who were actually involved in the white paper protest movement who are still being detained in China today. I also got a chance to catch up with lawmakers about the commemoration of this white paper freedom movement, and they said this is something that should be encouraged because it is a beacon of hope. So it's actually a little glimmer of hope that that still, uh, that China's uh, stronghold on its people is not as strong as they think it is. And encourage them to continue with that for the cause of freedom around the world is to acknowledge their sacrifice and, uh, and applaud their sacrifice. I think it's important to continue to do that, and this has to happen organically within the country. And this comes at a time when there's a new undiagnosed pneumonia breaking out in China and spreading, causing hospitalizations to spike. Now, this is raising concern among lawmakers here in Washington, D.C. Many of those whom I spoke to said that they're very concerned about the issue of transparency in the data coming out from China, saying that they don't even know how serious this pneumonia is because China uh, recently covered up the COVID-19 pandemic, which caused millions of deaths around the world. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weisskopf, NTD News. The challenges Chinese activists face are not confined to only China. Three pro-democracy advocates were attacked by a pro-CCP group after protesting during the APEC summit in San Francisco. One victim is now pleading with law enforcement to investigate the crime and arrest the suspects. NTD's David Jang reports. 
Kai Yu Zhang visited the San Francisco Police Department Wednesday to ask about a case he filed 12 days ago. Zhang was one of the three victims violently assaulted by a pro-CCP mob on November 17th near the San Francisco International Airport, where he, along with several other activists, were protesting against the Chinese regime leader Xi. After we left the protest site, we saw like 1,000 people, young people, waiting on the sidewalk. They literally just occupied the sidewalk. They didn't move. They just standing there waiting and with their red band on their head and all red band on their clothes to identify themselves. You know what they are. They are the protest and they are the pro-CCP people. So we know we are in trouble. He was pushed to the ground and beaten by the group in a Costco parking lot. Zhang's injuries were the most serious and he was taken to a hospital. Zhao was released from the ICU, but his left eye was injured by the attack. I was shocked, to be honest. Totally shocked. I cannot say surprise. I would say shock. And it's beyond my imagination. I couldn't imagine this kind of thing will happen in America. And the CCP has much more power or influence than I expected in the, this country in this American soil. With the help of witnesses and social media, the identity of one of the suspects was provided to law enforcement. So far, he has received no update on the case. There have been reports of protest organizers being followed on the streets by plainclothes agents believed to have been dispatched from the Chinese consulate. Over in Congress, the House Select Committee on the CCP has been pushing the DOJ to launch an investigation into these attacks on U.S. soil against people protesting Chinese leader Xi's visit to San Francisco. Chairman Representative Mike Gallagher has requested the DOJ to turn over information regarding the recent attacks on peaceful pro-democracy protesters. On Tuesday, the Congressional Executive Commission on China also issued a statement condemning the attack, saying the commission is outraged by videos showing harassment and assault against human rights advocates who gathered in San Francisco last week to protest CCP General Secretary Xi Jinping's visit to the United States and ongoing human rights abuses by the People's Republic of China. In April, multiple CCP police stations were discovered in the U.S., the FBI arrested two people in connection to the one in New York City. And coming up, a top campaign aide for Vivek Ramaswamy has jumped ship to join Trump's team just in time for next week's debates, which the former president will not attend. The crisis at the border continues to grow as the number of illegal immigrants increases. We talked to an expert to get the latest updates at the border in just a moment. I'm Tiffany Meyer in New York City, and we are NTD News. Good to have you back. A top aide to Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is joining former President Donald Trump's campaign. The Messenger reports that Brian Swenson confirmed he will work closely with a Trump campaign senior advisor. 
Swenson worked as national political director for the Ramaswamy campaign. He formally resigned from that role over the weekend. Swenson is expected to work on the Trump campaign's political operation in early voting states, specifically in Nevada, two Trump campaign sources told CNN. Swenson's departure is the latest indicator of Ramaswamy's stagnating campaign, which has struggled to gain momentum against frontrunner Donald Trump. Former President Trump is skipping the fourth GOP primary presidential debate next week in Alabama. The move comes as no surprise since Trump passed on attending the previous three as well. Trump will instead attend a MAGA fundraiser in Florida on December 6th, while four primary opponents take to the debate stage. The debate will take place at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa on December 6th. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, and Vivek Ramaswamy are expected to take part. And Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is at the border today. He's meeting with Border Patrol officials as a crisis at the border continues. Joining us live to discuss this is Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies. It's really good to see you. Good morning, Jessica. Now, first, good the morning. border. Good morning. The border really seems to be overwhelmed right now. They're shifting resources, closing an international bridge. So give us a quick update here. Are we seeing a spike this month? Uh, it does seem that way. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security does not uh, release numbers this quickly, but reports from individual border sectors show that it, it does seem that there's a huge increase in people coming really record-breaking numbers uh, in some sectors, more than 3,000 people a day. And it is absolutely overwhelming the Border Patrol and the communities where uh, the migrants are arriving. There simply is no infrastructure to manage it. And, you know, there's also the problem of people who are getting in while the Border Patrol is, is having to take care of these massive numbers of families and children who are coming that have to be processed and whom right. they are told to release into the country. Right, but why, why do you think are we seeing this influx now? Well, I think the message has gotten out around the world that the U.S. border is open, that if you make it across, if you pay a smuggler to get you uh, across that border, you are going to be released into the United States They've heard that sanctuary cities in the United States are offering shelter and that they might even be able to apply for a work permit and that there is going to be no one who tells them to go home for probably years or indefinitely. And so that is attracting people from all over the world to come across this unsecured border, but it's overwhelming the communities where these migrants are arriving. Right, and at the same time, it seems that many have to wait for a long time for shelter. So we're seeing temperatures significantly dropping now. It's really getting cold. So what do you expect will be the solutions um, by the cities that are currently overwhelmed for the migrants? Well, these cities are overwhelmed. Massachusetts has already said we can't, we have no more room. New York, people are waiting days to try to get into the shelters. Same in Chicago. And even Maine is struggling to put up all the migrants who've arrived. But the only solution would be for the Biden administration to change its policies to actually stop allowing people to come into the country. Um, you know, otherwise, taxpayers simply have to come up with 
uh, all these services to support the migrants. No one wants to see anyone freeze on the streets of New York, but there is a limit to our capacity to actually accommodate all of these people. And really the solution is to cut off the flow, not to keep letting people in. Right, and on that note, just one last question here. So there is a bipartisan group um, that is negotiating um, on the border policy right now. They're talking about when someone should be granted asylum, safe third countries and parole authority. Um, so what are you hoping to see come out of this? Well, um, what is necessary is to end this catch and release policy by um, limiting the president's ability to use parole to let people into the country who don't have a visa, are not qualified, are likely not going to uh, be able to get asylum. And that is the sticking point um, among this bipartisan group of senators. The Republicans want to stop catch and release. The Democrats want to allow it and almost legalize it. Um, and, and it remains to be seen what's going to happen. Um, I think that they can get to a solution if the Republicans hold fast and say, look, we're not doing a budget deal. We're, you're not going to get your money for Ukraine or Israel mm. or Taiwan unless you agree to secure our, our border as a top priority. Right. It seems like definitely that's where they stand right now. So thank you so much, Jessica Vaughn, for those updates and those insights. I appreciate your time this morning. Good to talk to you. Heading into break, coming up, the UAW is looking to launch a massive new initiative. We sit down with the host of NTD Business to get a closer look at the union's plans. Elon Musk has some choice words for advertisers that recently left his social media platform X, the latest in the controversy surrounding the billionaire. Sam Altman is officially back as the CEO for OpenAI. Hear what he has to say about his return to the company. Good to have you back. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss the United Auto Workers Union launching a first-of-its-kind initiative. It announced yesterday it wants to push to publicly organize the entire non-union auto sector in the U.S. It's a pretty bold statement and um, the UAW, from the UAW, so good to have you, first of all. Don, how are they planning to do that? Well, uh, it seems like they're targeting uh, 13 automakers. Uh, that's including Tesla, uh, Honda, Toyota, uh, and others, Volkswagen, BMW. Um, so it, it, is, it is a bold statement. So let me talk about their method first, and then uh, we can decide. So first of all, UAW President Sean Fain, uh, he published a video message uh, yesterday, and then the message urged non-union workers uh, to sort of join uh, the UAW's membership drive campaign here. Um, you know, in that message, he also urged uh, those interested to sign these uh, electronic cards um, to show their interest, to show that they want to join. And, and the point of these cards is that if they get around 30% of workers at a non-union plant to sign, uh, the UAW would make uh, this public. And I guess uh, the point of that is uh, is just to display, you know, how many people are interested in this. And if people, uh, 
over 50% uh, signed these cards. The UAW is going to hold a rally uh, with Fain to tout uh, the effort. And if 70% signed the cards, the UAW is going to seek recognition or demand a union representation vote. So that's just an overview of how he's approaching this. That is a tall order, but UAW is a force to be reckoned with. They have about 150,000 members, and they even said that the Toyota Assembly Complex in Kentucky has the strongest interest in going union. No comment on Toyota just yet, but how successful is it going to be when it's trying to unionize every U.S. automaker? Yeah, I mean, you just said uh, they have uh, around 150,000 members. Uh, so the all, all 13 combined automakers that are non-union is also around 150,000. So uh, a bit of an uphill battle here. Uh, I think historically speaking, if you look at their track record, uh, they haven't been very successful at unionizing automakers. Uh, I, I mean, if you just look recently, uh, look at uh, Volkswagen. Um, they haven't been uh, successful either in uh, unionizing foreign-based companies in the U.S. Um, and, you know, other automakers as well, like Tesla, Honda, it seems like uh, they're in the camp that they're not uh, very enthusiastic about this. Elon Musk uh, had previously said, CEO of Tesla, of course, that uh, if Tesla were ever unionized, it must have been something that they have failed in doing. And if they failed, I mean, uh, Elon Musk says that they deserve to be unionized. So uh, some pushback here from leaders, uh, but it doesn't mean that Sean Fain doesn't have support here. Uh, President Biden, of course, uh, very pro-union. He has uh, showed uh, support and he, he has backed uh, this uh, campaign that the UAW is trying to do uh, previously. And Sean Fain himself, it seems like, uh, is optimistic as well. I mean, you mentioned Toyota. Uh, but what he said is that uh, by the time the contracts end by 2028, so four years from now, maybe uh, when they go back to the negotiating table, it's going to be with not just the big three. He says maybe the big five or, or the big six. Um, so a, a little bit of opt optimism there. But if you ask me, are they going to be completely successful at unionizing all 13? Uh, my opinion is no, there's no way. Uh, but are they going to see some success? Yes, I do think so. Yeah, certainly very big plans also in light of what you just said, the failed attempts in the, in the past. But what else do you, did you bring for us today, Don? Yeah, uh, something that went viral on X uh, is that Elon Musk actually cursed out the advertisers that left his social media platform X during a summit interview yesterday. He even singled out Disney CEO Bob Iger He's faced a lot of backlash since the incident of his interaction with an alleged anti-Semitic Twitter post. Uh, Musk's comments have put pressure on social media, on the social media company, but he doesn't seem too worried. Uh, he repeatedly said that if the company fails because of advertiser boycott, it will fail because of an advertiser boycott. And that's what everybody on Earth will know. Yeah, he did say it will be the end of the company. And I, I saw that interview, really blunt, straightforward. And I was staying on tech. Is Sam Altman back at OpenAI for good? Uh, well, interest, in, interesting answer. Um, the, it's, it's that he, he is officially announced that uh, OpenAI has officially announced that Sam Altman has returned as CEO yesterday. Um, 
12 days after he was fired, actually. The artificial intelligence company also said it created a new board and only one director from the board that fired Altman remains. A key stakeholder, Microsoft, also gained a non-voting seat on the new board. And in a company blog post, Altman thanked the previous board for their contributions to the company. The chaos at OpenAI led the vast majority of its 800 employees to actually threaten to quit unless Altman and the company's former chairman were reinstated. Wow, so a lot of movement in, uh, in big tech. Yeah, it seems so. I mean, with Elon Musk, with Altman, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we'll have to see how this plays out. Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. And coming up, the Israeli economy is taking a hit during its war with Hamas. We hear from the CEO of a startup company about the challenges businesses face in the country when we come back. I'm Iris Tao at the White House, and we are NTD. Welcome back. Hope you're having a great morning. While the world is closely watching the fight between Israel and Hamas, there's another factor that could change the country. The war is putting severe strain on Israel's economy. I asked one of the founders of startup Green Onyx, CP Shohan, what she thinks about the current situation. So Green Onyx uh, has reached a maturation phase where uh, we have the technology, we have already the product ready to penetrate the market. And uh, the war happened and it's affect almost any business uh, in Israel uh, in terms of availability of employees. Uh, some of them are recruited to uh, enlisted to the army, to the service. Uh, some of them, unfortunately, um, face tragedies in their families. Um, and the overall mood is, is very, uh, very, very uh, uh, problematic and, and, uh, and severe. Uh, we really, we are going through a huge crisis here in Israel. Um, and we need to face it. And on that note, because you just mentioned that uh, the workforce, a lot of them are reservists, they were being called to the front lines. How affected are you by that? Our employee uh, team was cut by almost half. Uh, every person needs to do a double job. Uh, and of course, it's affect our uh, performance. And uh, we had to, we are communicated with, communicating with our uh, customers. Uh, everybody is, uh, is, uh, uh, understands the situation, but it affects dramatically our revenue, our plans. Um, and uh, as a result, we need to uh, recalculate our, our uh, plans uh, on a daily basis and find the right optimized uh, 
a strategy and execution plan. Right. And then, of course, in the bigger picture, too, um, it's not just the workforce. There is also uh, the question of investments for high-tech sector. Specifically, I, I read that in 2022 already it was down around 50 percent. And then, of course, the war again. And then um, I wonder what have you been seeing since the war began on top of the drop in investments already the year before? Absolutely. So as a startup, we are still dependent on funding. And uh, we reached a point that we can be very, very attractive uh, to funding from states, from Europe, from uh, countries outside of Israel, uh, as we are ready to penetrate the global market. And of course, uh, the motivation for people to uh, put money in Israel, in the Israel economy, with the uncertainties, uh, they cannot predict uh, what will come next uh, with the current situation. It blocks the uh, the possibility for investment even further. Um, so we are facing uh, a much difficult condition now to raise money. The, the, the engine of the of the economy in Israel, of the startups uh, based economy, is funding from the outside. And if this mm. if this is stopped, then it will have a severe effect, and it will affect dramatically the economy in Israel. But and, and uh, indeed will affect the. Uh, benefits for everybody from the innovation in Israel. I appreciate your time this uh, this morning, as well as sharing uh, your your company story. And I wish you all the best, uh, best of luck for your company. Thanks, Tipi Thank Shohan. Much. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's an important issue to bring to light, and that's just the price they pay for rooting out terrorist activity right next to them. Right. That um, apparently, it says the, uh, some estimates say that the war will cost Israel $53 billion in the next two years. So. Yeah, 3% hit to their GDP by the end of next year. It's big. Right. All right. Um, we're heading to a quick break for one minute, and then we'll be right back. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are top stories. A terrorist attack in Jerusalem this morning leaves three people dead. As a temporary truce between Israel and Hamas is extended another day just minutes before expiring. Details continue to emerge of horrific sexual violence against people in Israel during the October 7th Hamas terror attack. The UN now says it's investigating. A closer look at U.S. defense spending, we talked to an Epoch Times reporter to discuss to how it affects Americans. An expert on safe internet usage has some advice on how you can help your children combat misinformation found online.
This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning, everyone. Today is Thursday, November 30th, and we are starting with breaking news. A terrorist attack in Jerusalem this morning left three civilians dead and six wounded. Video of the attack shows two terrorists shooting into a crowded bus stop after getting out of their car. They were then killed by an IDF soldier who was returning to his unit with the help of an armed civilian. This happened after the truce between Israel and Hamas was extended just minutes before it was set, set to expire. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel on his fourth visit since October 7th. He met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog today to discuss the way forward and to make sure an attack like October 7th never happens again. The top U.S. diplomat says the temporary ceasefire is producing results. Here's Blinken earlier today. We're reminded yet again by the events in Jerusalem today of the threat from terrorism that uh, Israel and Israelis face every single day. And we have seen uh, over the last week the very positive development of hostages coming home, being reunited with their families, and that should continue today. Uh, it's also enabled uh, an increase in humanitarian assistance to go to innocent civilians in Gaza who need it uh, desperately. The temporary pause was extended to a seventh day just six minutes before the deadline. That was at 12 a.m. Eastern Time. It's the second extension of the initial four-day truce that began last week on Friday. Israel's military says the pause under the current framework will go on as long as the process to free hostages continues. Both sides say they are ready to resume fighting as soon as the truce ends. So far, the pause has resulted in the release of 70 Israelis. And the IDF says it's assessing a claim about the death of 10-month-old Kafir Bibas. Hamas says an Israeli strike killed the youngest Israeli hostage along with his brother and mother. Hamas provided no evidence to support the claim. The Bibas family released a statement saying they're waiting for information to be confirmed and hopefully refuted by military officials. The U.S. is urging Israel to narrow its zone of combat in its offensive after pause negotiations and, and to clarify which locations in Gaza are safe for civilians to shelter. One U.S. official says intelligence suggests Hamas leadership fled to southern Gaza, but did not say if it was U.S. or Israeli intelligence. The IDF says many Hamas terrorists fled to the south due to Israel announcing strikes beforehand and that it's something that needs to be addressed in a future campaign. Administration officials are reportedly asking for more targeted precision strikes. They're floating the idea of moving civilians back north once operations in the south begin. And earlier I spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, an IDF spokesman. We discussed the latest updates in the Israel-Hamas war, including claims about the death of an infant hostage. Well, obviously, throughout the last uh, seven weeks, we've seen Hamas extensively utilizing psych psychological terrorism in order to cause more harm, more pain to Israelis. Um, of the last uh, six days, and now we're in day seven of the hostage uh, release, hostage transfer, we have, and Israeli society, have been glued to their televisions uh, in anticipation to see who is being released 
in anticipation to see what is their condition. And indeed, every word that comes out of Hamas is part of their psychological terrorism against, um, against Israel. Colonel Lerner, what do you make of the timing of this claim by Hamas, given that there haven't been any significant strikes by the IDF recently due to the ceasefire? I don't want to address what Hamas is doing. I can say what we are doing. We are currently in the, in the process of preparing for today for an additional hostage handover to Israel. We will, uh, of course, receive them at the border and accompany them to the initial medical uh, assistance that they need to receive, psychological um, evaluation, and then hand them over to the Israeli health authorities um, on one hand. And on the other hand, we are preparing for our operational side of the, of the mission of resuming our efforts against Hamas in order to dismantle and destroy them and make sure that they don't have the power of government uh, in order to conduct such brutal, merciless acts of terrorism against us ever again. Yes, and let's turn now to the ground campaign in southern Gaza. Does the IDF have a plan to use greater precision in its strikes there? We are conducting, uh, um, obviously, after-action reviews from the uh, our operations in the north, and we are, I'd say, designing uh, operational plans for uh, to reach our goals of destroying and dismantling Hamas. Uh, obviously, I won't go into specifics, but of course, we are taking into consideration the need and necessity to be to operate within the civilian arena. This is where Hamas chooses the battleground. They have instilled all of their operational capabilities in schools, in mosques, in hospitals, in UN facilities. This is the challenge that we face. Of course, we are uh, in a war against Hamas, not against the people of Gaza. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, IDF spokesman, thank you so much for your update on this. The UN is investigating sexual violence by the Hamas terror group in the October 7th attacks on Israel. The agency said Wednesday it will soon launch an appeal for evidence. Evidence will be given to the International Criminal Court. Israel and families of Israeli hostages have criticized the UN for keeping quiet on the matter in the past. Israeli authorities opened their own investigation after evidence of rape and other sexual crimes emerged including victims found disrobed and mutilated. Testimony was also given by first responders at the sites of the attacks and from soldiers who tended to the bodies during the identification process. The evidence gathered could be used for war crimes prosecutions. And a U.S. Navy warship shot down a drone launched from Yemen yesterday. It's the latest in a string of threats from Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. The USS Carney downed the Iranian-made drone that was headed toward it. The drone was launched from a Houthi-controlled area of Yemen. The Carney was escorting a combat supply ship and another U.S. ship carrying military equipment. There were no injuries to U.S. personnel and no damage to the ships. And Senate Democrats seem to be split on whether or not aid to Israel should come with conditions attached. Senators opposed aid without conditions, debated yesterday, but stopped short of saying they would vote against a bill without conditions. Those against adding conditions argue the administration is already engaged with Israel on how it conducts military operations. They say international laws already exist to govern the rules of war. Democrats met with IDF officials earlier this week to discuss the topic. Republicans have rejected adding conditions, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. 
Any package that passes in the Senate still has to make it through the GOP-led House, which is likely to reject any conditions on aid. The divide is one of the many hurdles in stalling packages meant to aid Israel, Ukraine and the southern border. Now we take a close look at U.S. defense spending and how it affects you. We're zooming in on this with Andrew Thornbrook, a reporter for the Epic Times. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So what impact will Biden's request for $105 billion in supplemental security spending have on Americans? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's going to be felt, of course, this is always ultimately going to come from the taxpayer and it's going to go directly. Most of it's going to go directly to uh, these defense contractors who will be responsible for building up American supply chains and replenishing our own stockpiles after we give our weapons to uh, our allies. Yes, and there have been some shortages reported as the United States arms Ukraine in the past. And Biden is calling this package a smart investment. But what do you think? are really the beneficiaries of such an investment. Yeah, so that's one of the key issues here, you know, is we are increasingly seeing concerns raised from analysts and lawmakers about the potential for war profiteering here, uh, especially as the Biden administration really leans into this domestic and economic uh, justification. Uh, so we've seen, like you said, President himself say that this is going to be a smart investment, that it's going to pay dividends to the security sector. We've seen uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, say that this is going to line the coffers of the defense industry. That's, the coffers is literally what he said. Uh, and, and so there's this real fear now that this is essentially being used to sell uh a wealth transfer, essentially, from the American taxpayer to these already hyper flush uh, defense contractors and essentially pay their way to have a job for the next 10 to 15 years as they rebuild our supply chains after we've given all our weapons away. So does the defense lobby incentivize conflict? Absolutely. And, and that's a key issue here is that the defense lobby. Yeah. So there's a number of things to understand about the defense lobby here. First is that uh, our major defense corporations, I mean, they employ lobbyists in Congress to a huge degree. There, there's more than 800 lobbyists. Like, just, just for the record, we have less than 500 members of Congress, and there's more than 800 defense lobbyists on the Hill. Uh, so this is a major, uh, major deal. And they also provide millions and millions of dollars to think tanks that largely craft defense policy for Congress. Uh, and so there's a really out, out overweighted... Uh, preference given to the defense industry, uh, its desires, what it thinks is good for its business, which can ultimately lead to the prolonging of conflict unnecessarily and even uh, sort of mix the United States up in, uh, you know, whatever crimes its allies or partners might uh, partake in during their own conflicts. So, Andrew, we just have one more minute here for the solution. How does the U.S. secure its security interests abroad without diverting too many resources to the military-industrial complex? Yeah, well, that's the key issue here, right? And uh, generally speaking, you need an informed electorate to elect uh, representatives who understand the need to maintain national security but not to give in to private corporate interests that will prolong conflict. Uh, unfortunately, what we're seeing now uh, with both parties in Congress is that the Democrats, for one, uh, are willing to fund Ukraine until the very end, no matter what happens, 
and won't fund Israel. But the Republicans are the exact opposite, saying we can't have any guardrails on Israel funding and we should stop funding Ukraine. Uh, so what the United States is really faced with now is that we're being led by two dramatically pro-war parties who just happen to favor different wars. Uh, and, and so that's something that the electorate is really going to have to contend with. And it, it's going to have to come from the voter if we really need to see if we want to see change. An interesting perspective and good analysis from you, Andrew Thornbook, reporter for The Epic Times. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Heading to break soon, Internet misinformation is everywhere, especially on social media. An internet safety expert gives us some tips on how you and your children can combat it. Here's some advice coming up. Welcome back. And this just happened just now. Congressman George Santos spoke to the press ahead of his expected expulsion vote. He said that nobody has seen the ethics reports of any other members under investigations and called the expulsion a theater play. Santos added that he will be looking to introduce a new special expulsion measure to target those members. And that he will be filing a slew of complaints today and tomorrow. Moving on, erratic payments with no services rendered. A bank investigator sounded the alarm on over a dozen large wire transfers to accounts controlled by Hunter Biden. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the 2018 email released by Representative James Comer. The bank investigator was working under the Bank Secrecy Act. That's a U.S. law that makes banks help the government identify and combat money laundering. The email shows the bank investigator flagged about $5 million in funding from a company linked to the Chinese government. The bank investigator wrote that money was being paid out, but there were no investment projects. The investigator said the money primarily funded 16 wires, ranging from around $157,000 to $400,000. That added up to nearly $3 million to a redacted name and to Owasco PC, a law firm in D.C. owned by Hunter Biden. In the email, the bank manager warned about China targeting the children of politicians and purchasing political influence through, quote, sweetheart deals. The investigator specifically mentioned Hunter Biden's $1.5 billion deal with the Chinese state to establish a private equity firm in which they manage the funds over time and make huge fees. The investigator wrote that the management company's purpose is to invest in companies that benefit the Chinese government, adding that the activity on the account appears unusual with no current business purpose and may require re-evaluation of the bank's relationship with the customer. That's Hunter Biden activity linked to China, but Republicans also have concerns about the first son related to Ukraine. They said on Wednesday they want to talk to executives at Blue Star Strategies, a lobbying company connected to Hunter Biden. Representatives Jim Jordan and James Comer said they have evidence suggesting the company was involved in the arrangement between Hunter Biden and Burisma, a Ukrainian-based energy company. Make no mistake. Financial records, emails, text messages, and witness testimony reveal that the Biden family enterprise is centered on Joe Biden's political career and connections. 
Joe Biden knew about, participated, and benefited from these schemes. The White House has insisted Biden was not involved in his son's business dealings. No president has ever been forced from the White House through impeachment. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A letter from Osama bin Laden recently went viral on TikTok, especially among younger users. Vice President and General Counsel for NetChoice, Carl Zabo, has some advice for parents and teachers on how to counteract negativity online. NetChoice is an organization working to make the Internet safe for free enterprises and free expression. Company Vice President Carl Zabo says the issue Americans face today cannot be blamed solely on the Internet. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a technological problem. We have a societal problem. And the real problem here is that the next generation is seeing a letter from Osama bin Laden and seeing some sort of validity in it, thinking that this is a rational statement by a rational person. Zabo says parents and teachers need to do three important things. We need to look, we need to teach, and we need to talk. We need to look and what our kids and teens are doing on social media. We need to see what they're seeing. We need to teach. I'm sorry, but the murderers and monsters of history are monsters, and we need to unequivocally explain that. Whether it's Hitler, whether it's Mao, whether it's Osama bin Laden, or whether it's communism, these are bad things from bad people. And then finally, we need to talk. When these situations arise, we as parents, we as educators, we need to step in and have conversations with our teenagers, with our children, and explain to them what 9-11 was like, what Osama bin Laden did, and what a ruthless murderer he is. So I think that's the way that we address it. Zabo advises viewing current stories on social media as opportunities to talk with the younger generation and teach them the difference between information and disinformation. But that's where we need to go back and ask ourselves, what is the solution? And the solution at the end of the day is on us. We need to do a better job educating that these bad actors are bad actors. So I don't care if they're getting misinformation from TikTok or whether it's coming from members of Congress who continue to state that Israel bombed hospitals or whether it's even the front page of the New York Times that says the same thing. We need to have the conversations because at the end of the day, Bad information is bad information. It will get out there. And what we need to do is explain why it's bad, why it's wrong, and why Osama bin Laden has no place anywhere in our societal discussions. He puts the responsibility squarely on the individual, not the government. Banning technology is not the solution you see in authoritarian regimes. Instead, we need to take it upon ourselves to do what's right and educate. So that's where it becomes really scary. When government gets involved and starts telling us what we can't say and what we can say, that's where we all need to take a moment and pause and say, you know what? Maybe the answer is not government. Maybe the answer is ourselves. Zabo says the spread of bad information will happen regardless of an information ban. He says the problem is cultural and the solution lies in education. I mean, he's, I think that's true. Whoever wants to spread this information will always find a way. Yeah, and we mentioned informed electorate here. Those are things that can lead to good policy, that can put in place important courses like on the Holocaust and the horrors of communism in public schools that can help students sort through any of these 
types of information coming from those sources. Yeah, that's right. And at the same time, I think it's, uh, it's, it's smart to keep the responsibility with each individual, right, instead of wait for a big reform or something like that. And interestingly enough, you know, according to Pew Research, apparently a majority of Americans actually think that social media has a negative effect on how things are playing out in the U.S. Anyway, yeah, there definitely so. needs to be a filtering process there. Mm. All right, uh, we're wrapping up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for a News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.